Welcome back to Upfront, the podcast with me, Katie Hannan. On this week's Upfront, we had a special programme, a conversation about gender-based violence. We asked what is driving this violence and looked at the impact it's having on how women and girls go about their lives. And we also talked about the impact it's having on all boys and men and asked what more we should be doing to make us all safer in our homes and in our communities. So to dig a little deeper into those questions on this week's podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Kira Staunton, who is a forensic psychologist and lectures on this subject in University College Cork. The statistics, if we just look at those statistics, and we've been hearing about them a lot recently, 264 women have died violently in Ireland since 1996. 20 children died during those incidents when those w- women died. 19 women have died in the 22 months since Ashling Murphy's murder. Like, they're really chilling statistics. I'm wondering, is there any way of knowing if it's getting worse or if we're just hearing about this more now in terms of you know coercive control and, and the whole gender-based violence debate? Is it getting worse? Statistics will indicate that, by and large, not necessarily. There's been no official sudden jump in those figures. There is a steady increase, so, and a steady upward trajectory of violence against women. How can we account for that? There could be, again, a number of factors. Are we getting better at recording and recognizing these incidences? I think we are. I think the debate, certainly around these issues, is helping women come forward. So that, of course, is going to add to the official statistics. But of course, this is all set in a context where even those official records um, don't account for the vast majority of women who don't come forward. So again, we have a mismatch here between what we know to be true versus the reality on the ground. And that juxtaposition between those working in the sector, in the refugees, in the victim support units, in the rape crisis centres, versus what we will know from our official records and statistics. I suppose one of the questions we were asking on Monday night was the most basic of all questions. Why? Like, what is driving this level of violence and murder? We need to look at this in a number of ways. First of all, we need to understand there are men who commit murders against women. Within that, there are men who commit murders against the women known to them. So this intimate partner violence There are men who commit murders against women that they don't know. And there are men who commit murders against other men. So taking away the gender aspect, we look at factors. Is there anything that we can do to understand what drives that level of violence in general? And when you look at what's kind of common in the profiles of these men, we do these men, we do unearth a number of um, kind of commonalities in their background. So we're looking at things like adversity in childhood. We're looking at any elements of psychiatric illness or mental health issues. We're looking at the influence of drugs and alcohol. Of course, there's a real nuance then which separates out those men who kill their partners or ex-partners versus those that kill strangers or others men. And this is where the complexity and nuance comes in. We can't ignore the effect of socialization. But as a psychologist, we're keen to understand what separates them out at an individual level. So we hear terms like power, control and entitlement being used, which gives a top level, maybe explanation for motivation. But for me, the question is, where do these constructs come from? So for each individual, what is driving that sense of power for that individual male? 
Can I just, just on this, because I know when we have these debates, uh, I, men come forward and say, first of all, we hear that not all men, obviously, and we, we try to acknowledge that as much as we could on Monday night's programme as well. We're obviously clear we're not talking about all men here. Um, but also that there are male victims in domestic violence scenarios as well. And maybe perhaps more male victims than, than is appreciated generally because would men maybe be more reluctant even than women to come forward and acknowledge what might be happening behind their front door? Very much so. And and all the evidence points that from those who do come forward and when you understand well, what are the barriers to reporting in the first place. And oftentimes, even when we hear from women themselves, it's complex. It's recognising, it's retrospectively, it's easy to identify the risk. But of course, for the people living in it, it's very hard to project the level of threat that they may be under. So elements of coercive control, controlling behaviours, those can range from very subtle, insidious grooming style manipulations right through to overt threats. Now, we tend to see that spectrum. And when those threats are overt, those are really the red flags, because this is, again, where the nuance is. You can have a whole cornucopia of subtle behaviours that might become normalised within a relationship and within a family when you start to see that escalation to overt threats, that seems to be the point which might prompt either a woman or a man to come forward when they start to really feel fear for their safety. But of course, we have cases where it seems to be out of nowhere that even the women and men themselves don't recognize that. So again, that is the complexity of it. At what point do we need to establish or do we need to support women to recognize in any relationship and men this is not right, actually. You know, this this behavior, this how this individual is treating me, even if it's not physically abusive or verbally abusive, it is tapping into some of these elements of coercive control and manipulation. Can we talk a little about narcissism? Because it seems to me like we didn't talk at all about narcissism up until relatively recently. And now everybody who does anything wrong is a narcissist, basically. <laughs> you know, I, I'm obviously being facetious, but it seems it, it has become the kind of go to uh, phrase for an explanation for all sorts of behavior. How common is narcissism? Like, the you know, clinically, psychologically, under you know, accepted narcissism? Well, you're right. Okay, so first of all, people have a fairly loose understanding of what narcissism is. And we're also seeing the term psychopathy, you know, that somebody's a psychopath and that explains what they are doing, when in fact it doesn't. So both narcissism um, and narcissism is um, a, a personality, constellation of personality traits. So it requires a psychiatric diagnosis. So the lay person, you know, we might discuss narcissism and our understanding of it in terms of that sense of entitlement. So here we have that sense of entitlement, but there are nine characteristics to a narcissistic personality disorder. You have to have at least four of those before a clinical diagnosis will be made. So what that means on the spectrum of narcissistic behaviors and personalities, you have many people who have elements of narcissism, such as, such as an inflated sense of ego or that sense of entitlement, but that is doesn't make the individual a narcissistic person. Okay, but my question is, if you are a narcissist, can you can you help yourself then? You know, how much of your what you do then is driven by this disorder you have? And how much of it is something that you can control yourself and, and that you are, you know, that, that you, you, you can't be blamed for? 
That is a really interesting question. In the first response is that, first of all, the individual has to have some insight into their own narcissistic traits they may not have. Because if you consider a narcissistic personality disorder, it is the person's personality. So they don't know any different. So how they are thinking, how they are feeling, or their lack of remorse is intrinsic to them. They can't compare it to how you or I are feeling. And this is what separates these individuals out, that they almost don't have the capacity to empathize with other individuals in the way that the most of us do. And that makes it difficult for us to understand because we assume these individuals, how can they do something like that? But when you start to tap into some of these traits and there is good, strong neurological evidence to highlight that there are differences in the brain architecture of individuals who demonstrate these traits versus other versus those of us who don't. There was a very interesting case in the UK several years ago. We had a young man who brutally murdered both of his parents and stabbed them left them in the house and went off to America for several weeks to carry on with his life. In this case, it made legal history in the UK because the he was assessed by nine psychiatrists who all diagnosed him as having narcissistic personality disorder and all nine traits of the disorder. And the courts in the UK found that this individual was not responsible for the murder of his parents based on his personality disorder. Now, he still received a conviction for life, but it was that first time that it recognized that maybe it is the disorder that's driving those behaviors rather than the individual. I suppose the other question is, how do these these people, and we know they walk amongst us, how can they disguise it uh, at the early stages of a relationship, disguise this this lack of empathy, this lack, this, this, you know, what's missing there in their personality uh, to the degree that they do suck people into relationships with them who, you know, and then only later for those, their partners to realize where what, what they've landed themselves in. What what they're doing is manipulating and grooming. So they're not necessarily trying to hide it, but they will have an end game. And again, we should just say that this doesn't account for all incidences of, of cases of murder and violence against women, but it certainly accounts for a proportion. So for some, we see these grooming behaviours and manipulations very early on in the relationship. They know how to play the game and they are in it for the long haul and there might be an end game in sight. Um, for some, it's that the marriage, it's all a farce, you know, especially those who have psychopathic tendencies. It's all a means to an end, but they know how to play the game sufficiently to get the person to fall in love with them, to go through with the marriage. The hidden, where the mask slips is only evident to that person. And that can be very tricky for the individual experiencing it because they will manipulate those around them. They will manipulate the family members. They will play that game and they will play it very successfully. And that then is to the detriment because for the woman, let's say, she may not be believed. She may not even be believed by family members because it's all part of a game. We have a very famous case in Ireland, the Mary Goff case, um, murdered by her husband, Colin Wheeler. We see it with the Rachel O'Reilly murder. I would describe those two individuals as fitting that kind of definition of a psychopathic individual um, and all of the, 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 the groundwork that they put in to um, the manipulations of those women. OK, they're individuals, as you say, that are engaged in the long game and know what they're about. Is there, is there a possibility 
that stress and and just the you know what life throws at you know some couples that it can drive perfectly you know psychologically healthy people to do terrible things are, are, is that is that like in this mix as well because you often we often quote you know Maya Angelou the the line if somebody shows you who they are believe them the first time but a lot of women particularly who find themselves in this scenario and there has been some outburst of aggression or violence kind of put it down to the stress of of their situation and say, no, that's not really them. To what degree does that hold true for couples? Well, okay. so again, you have those two cases we spoke about here. We have an element of premeditated murder okay so it has been thought about and has been planned for but there are also loads of instances which appear spontaneous in nature so it seems to be sudden out of character in the moment and highly emotional so again we look at potential and i use the word triggers rather than motivation so the individual there may not have been a previous motivation to harm or kill the partner but as to your point there are stresses or triggers in that person's life that has pushed them over the edge. So the question there is, well, what are the nature of those triggers and how is the person dealing with them? And that is what taps in then to an individual, if we're speaking about males, their sense of masculinity, their sense of identity. And again, when that is threatened, um, that can be sufficient to drive them over the edge in those moments. One of the biggest risk factors for women in relationships like this is that the threat or the woman who indicates she's she's ready to extricate herself from the relationship, that actually is a very um, dangerous position to be in. And I would love for more women to understand that and how maybe get support in terms of conveying that message in the first place. Because it's sometimes it might seem as simple as that, but for the individual who who has deeply entrenched subtle misogynistic views, that might be enough to drive them over the edge. So again, it's complex because they may not be overtly misogynistic. They may actually be quite good people in many aspects of their life and their relationship, but it's 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 deeply ingrained that the woman leaving, again, it's that power balance and um, it's going to tap into that for them. Yeah, well, that was exactly, of course, that uh, horrific murder that we, we featured on the show on Monday night, Jason Poole's sister, Jenny. And it was a week after she left that relationship that he came back and killed her. Uh, really, really horrific. And as you say, that's that's something we do hear about. But to go back to the question about the Maya Angelou, you know, show, you know, if you, if somebody shows you who they were, believe them the first time. I think a lot of women who have had maybe a loving relationship up to the point where something happens that that frightens them, I, I think they they don't believe that that is who their partner is. I think there's a continuum there. I mean, who of us is perfect? We all have moments. Um, only, the, only the individual will know. But if if there is anything about the relationship that makes you feel uncomfortable, you should maybe question it. You should talk about it. Maybe run it past somebody, a friend, or just get an external set of eyes. You, sometimes, you know, somebody outside of the relationship might see things in a way that you can't because you're 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 in it um, and you're clouded we're biased through love through feelings through circumstance through children and um, to the individual and, and sometimes having an external set of eyes just to maybe tease that out and having that conversation with somebody might be revealing to the individual and even articulating it 
could be helpful, you know, that there is that little piece of information out that there is that friend who has identified, gosh, you know, she did come to me and she did say this had happened. Let's go back to what drives this, uh, Akira. In terms of, I think you mentioned it for at the very top, how uh, we are socialized, you know, from a young age. I'm particularly thinking about uh, what is available to young boys on their phones right now from age nine. You know, when that from the first moment that phone is put into a child's hand, there is some extreme hardcore pornography available for free on that phone, available at any time of the day or night. Do we have any data to indicate that that is having an impact on how a, a young brain that is just being formed, uh, you know, thinks about the world? Um, well, yes, I mean, and we do understand that access to this kind of material does have an impact because you're right, it's a critical point of development for a child. Um, the brain is developing um, from nine to 12. You're starting to see the early stages of sexual maturation and, de- and development. That's the most worrying part here is why are we allowing nine-year-olds to have smartphones? I think this is a societal response. So there are things we can't control, but there's lots that we can. So actually, that is the question I would have for parents and schools, you know, access to these devices at such a young age. Can we do more in that space? I believe we can. I think there's an age appropriate time when children should have access to smartphones, possibly not till they're that little bit older because of that availability of material. Now, on the other side of that, you have um, it's this material is available, but it's not that easily accessible. So, again, I would question the, the family circumstances in which a child not only has access to these devices, but then unfettered access to these devices. And um, again, we have examples of extreme cases. We've had the murder of Annie Priyajal and those horrific set of circumstances. And there's no doubt about it that the influence of what those boys were viewing on the smartphones had a bearing um, and was a factor in the ultimate um, recreation of the behaviours that they were witnessing. So again, there is a complex developmental piece here in terms of access to the availability of but the intrinsic um, internalization of what young boys are seeing into what then is normalized and explained. Is that the answer then? Because obviously we can talk about this little cows come home, but we need to somehow, uh, you know, forge a path to uh, to a place where this isn't something we take for granted, that this is just going to happen, that we're just going to have to always be worried about Wall Street. We're going to have to always be worried about, you know, who, who, you, who you end up in an intimate relationship with. What What is, to your mind, the, the, you know, the most important changes we need to make to change the path we're on? Starting early. It's like anything. And in a typical psychology answer, it starts in childhood. So, family practices, family rearing, reinforcing that through school, our whole sex education curriculum needs updating. There's a lot of kind of controversy around it um, at the moment. I think we've also establishing a, a healthier rhetoric and conversation around masculinity and femininity. I think it is creeping in that this is a gendered debate. And while it certainly is genderly gendered in terms of the violence perpetrated, that is now we're in danger of losing the nuance of some of those underlying factors. 
Um, and I think we're giving out the wrong message to young men that somehow being masculine is problematic because that's what they're hearing. And we're hearing things like toxic masculinity as if that explains everything when it doesn't. It's when you break it down into the components. What does it mean to be a good man? We also need to include men. Men have to be part of the solution because as you said yourself, by and large, most men are good men. Most men, many men will also come from traumatic backgrounds or have drugs and alcohol in their lives, but they are no more at risk of um, committing violent acts. So we need men to be part of the solution. We need to call out bad attitudes and bad behaviours as young as we start to see them develop. The Harvey Weinstein case for me was a watershed moment, the hashtag Me Too campaign, the murder of Sarah Everard in England. Suddenly there is a far more media attention to these cases than there has ever been. And it's opening up the debate and the conversations, which is good and healthy. So that'll add to the awareness. I did want to ask you about that, actually, about the hashtag Me Too campaign. Um, and to a degree to which, has there been something of a backlash? Because I do see examples of more overt misogyny out there. On, you know, if you look across social media, if you even look at some of the responses online to our program on Monday night, that you feel that men, there's a pushback to this, that that there are a certain cohort of men who feel threatened by this conversation. And and there is a, you know, there's a heightened sense of, of a reaction to that. And I, I think this is exactly my point, that we're in danger of polarizing the debate even more by considering it in a purely gendered viewpoint, because those are exactly the men we need to reach. Because, again, it's a small minority of men who feel threatened. It takes a very healthy individual who feels secure in their masculinity to stand up the same way as women who are secure in their femininity without being accused of being feminists. You see, so again, it's establishing safe spaces for these debates to happen because we have to be able to target those very men and ask them why do they feel threatened you know and that's is where you start to get under the hood a little bit of well what is the attitude that they have and and, and a good example of this is you you you've mentioned it um how do men do this how do we equip men you know if we want them to to, to be part of the solution i would say to all men who are good just be that person if you do hear something in the locker room or from another man. And it's not challenging it in an aggressive way, but maybe just question it. As, you know, why, why do you say that? You know, about what, why do you say that comment? So there's a way, there's a skill in, in, in tackling um, an attitude that, that isn't aggressive or that doesn't drive it underground. Because what we do see is when those men are driven at underground, i.e. to the far right kind of movement, they go to places where they are validated and they will find other people who share their views. And of course, that reinforces their views. And that's what makes them so entrenched. So we need to find a way to peel back to the surface level and actually be more supportive and encouragement to open up. And maybe it's just asking that question. Um, and those are difficult questions to ask, but if we could all be more encouraged to do them, to do it, it would, it would be very helpful. 
just that reminds me again for professionals i would be really keen that as professionals working in the space we do get better at asking the questions around homicidal thoughts because again it's one of the biggest risk factors but it's not a question anybody asks but if we could understand more about those men who do resort to that ultimate act of, of violence and homicide if we could understand more the logic behind that and what has contributed to their thinking patterns that would give us a way in as professionals um, to, to intervene. So you're saying that psychiatrists and psychologists and people working in your space, if the, that when they are, are uh, treating and involved in therapy with men, that they actually ask straight out, do you ever think about killing someone? Yes, 100%. Have you ever thought about killing your partner? Have you ever thought about killing your child? Absolutely. <laughs> I can imagine that that might put a dent in some relationships uh, with their with their therapists. It may well, but it also might be absolutely the question that needs to be asked in order for that person to ad- admit to it and to think about it and then talk through. And isn't it better to ask the question than to be dealing with the the mur- the family or the bereft family when a murder has happened? I'm I'm thinking that because I think women get asked that question, uh, particularly women in, who are maybe dealing with postnatal depression, because, you know, we have seen obviously some very tragic uh, situations there. Uh, but uh, yeah, you're right. I wonder how many men get asked that question in, in, in those sort of ter- therapy uh, setups. And that's assuming they're in therapy in the first place. But my point is, as a society, if we can put out the olive branch almost, and if, as I say, if we can find ways of supporting men to develop the skill to be able to deal with the emotions that they are feeling that might be driving them. So to, to, to help them to deal with this power inequality, um, that will be very helpful. So they find alternative strategies. So because usually this resorting to violence, if you think about it as a form of, of power and control, there is a sense they feel diminished um, and they don't know how to deal with that. And then they jump straight to the only way they know how to cope is by exerting their force and their virility and their masculinity. Uh, Kira, thank you so much. I, honestly, that's uh, it's so interesting. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of it. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. And that was Dr. Kira Staunton. Thanks for listening to Upfront, the podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, you can message us on social media at RTE Upfront or via WhatsApp. Our WhatsApp number is 87 1000 And don't forget to tune in to Upfront on Monday evening at 10.35 on RTE One and on the RTE Player. And I'll talk to you then. <laughs>